You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie from the U.S. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you are listening to your favorite international podcast, the podcast hosted by two women who have still never met in real life. Also, <laughs> the podcast with the best listeners. Seriously, the best listeners, really. Oh, speaking of which, shout out to our listeners on YouTube. Thank you so much for liking, subscribing, and leaving your questions and comments. I was watching YouTube, something on YouTube the other day, and at the end they're like, thank you so much for liking and subscribing and leaving comments. And I was like, we never say that. And we get great comments. Yes, we got a lot of really nice comments lately. Thank you so much. And also, thank you to our newest Patreon members. And they are Kirsten, sorry if I mispronounced it, Ellen Landry and Amy H. Sturgis. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I also really wanted to apologize for not being able to record for last week. I just, it was not good and I could not fight through it. It was a week of migraines and I'm still kind of dealing with it. It's no good, but it is good to be back. I Definitely. missed you and I missed recording, but it was the weirdest thing for me. Like usually I'm always super busy on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, right? With podcast stuff. There's recording and editing and uploading and then doing the YouTube video and, and so on and so on. And so this last week, that wasn't the case. And then usually if it's not the podcast, I have tons of other things to do with the renovations and driving my sister and going to this place and that place. And again, last Tuesday and Wednesday, suddenly there was nothing, which I didn't have in month. And so I was like, that is weird. What am I going to do now? <laughs> and all I did is I watched TV. I did read. I was super lazy and it was so nice. So all was good. I'm glad though that you're starting to feel a bit better. And I'm glad that we're recording today. Yeah, I'm really glad that you had some nice downtime. That's the best when there's just those rare days. Yeah. So today, oh boy, today. Today we're going to be talking about, I think, maybe, probably, another very early New England serial killer. Yeah. Some people actually believe that we're going, the person that we're discussing today may be America's first serial killer because these crimes were committed before Herman Mudgett, aka H.H. Holmes, would ever be born in New Hampshire. So this predates him by quite a few years. When I was researching, I kept having really, really serious deja vu, like of the worst kind, because this isn't the first time I've dove into old newspaper articles to find out just as much as I could about a case, an old murder. And then I realized I had more than one murder to discuss. It happens. It's happened a lot, actually. The Velisca murders, mm. the Axe murders, the Axe Man of New Orleans, mm. just so many. But it happened specifically before in New England when I was discussing Josie Langmaid and doing research on that case. And I'm so like disturbed and fascinated by all of this because I think that these cases overlap a little bit with those. They happen in the same sort of part of the country around the same time, similar MO. I really can't wait until you've heard all of these cases and I want to discuss what we think may have happened in the Facebook group. So this is a two-parter, and if you're the sort of person who waits until both episodes of a two-part are released, totally get that. But wait, 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 before you turn this off, 
Let me just make a quick suggestion. If you haven't already, you might want to go back and re-listen to episodes 80 and 81. That's the murder of Marietta Ball, the Fountie Women, and Josie Langmaid. It's the first thing I did when I found these cases. And when we realized I couldn't record last week, we I did try to post on socials so that you could maybe go back and, and re-listen to them because it's it's spooky. Yeah, and I too did refresh my memory a little bit as well. Those murders were particularly gruesome. Yeah. Yep. And not only are these crimes we're going to discuss today similar, like I said before, you know, same time, same place. Are they linked? How did I also, how did I not come across these killings when I was researching the murders of the Fountie women and Josie Langmaid and Marietta Ball? I just don't understand. The timing is so, I don't know. You definitely sparked my interest there. Yeah. It's really bothering me, and I feel like my brain can't quite compute it all, so hopefully yours can. Oh, right. Also in those episodes, we tell you what the measurement of a rod is, because that kept coming up over and over again in these cases as well. All right. So let's get into it and see what we think. We are going to be discussing the assault, sexual assault, and murder of children today, and it's bad. It's, uh, it's really bad. We're not going to speculate or dwell on any of these facts, but they're there, and you know we always give you all the details. And in this case, the most disturbing aspects of the case are possible MOs, right? So we're always going to tell you everything. All right, so Derry, New Hampshire is the first town that we're going to be discussing, and the first crime we need to talk about is one that I found in one of my sources, which is Murder by Gaslight. It's a fantastic website. It talks about all kinds of gruesome historical crimes. I'm certain I've mentioned it many times on the podcast before. If you want to just spend hours and hours reading about old crime stories, check out Murder by Gaslight. I believe it's Robert Wilhelm who's responsible for managing it and writing, so thank you. I've always found their research to be really superb compared to some other websites you see out there. All right. So the Murder by Gaslight page on this subject is called The Northwood Murderer, and this article is what led me to dive into several crimes, not just the one I'd originally intended. And this next piece comes from Murder by Gaslight on The Northwood Killer. Quote, On October 30th, 1850, in the town of Derry, New Hampshire, the five-year-old daughter of Stephen Mills, one of a set of twins, was kidnapped from her home. The parents had left them alone, and someone had climbed through a window in the house and taken the girl. Mills offered what he could afford, a $100 reward for her return. The police had suspects, but no evidence and no trace of the missing girl was ever found. End quote. That's sad, obviously, and also scary. Thinking about people who enter your home is always extreme scary. It's just like this extra layer of horrifying. Yeah, it absolutely is, isn't it? And we're going to circle back to this case again next week. I searched every which way I could think of to find more information about the kidnapping of the Mills child, and I couldn't find it, except for when it turns up later in a confession, but that's not for this week. It doesn't help that the name Mills brings up countless articles, because these were the days when Mills were booming, right? It was like the time when Mills started popping up all over the place. I also couldn't get access to a very particular old newspaper which was the New Hampshire Patriot and State Gazette, and their issue on 14th of November 1850 was the source of the Murder by Gaslight article. I don't want the ghosts of journalists past haunting my dreams. So that's all the info we have on the Mills child for now. I wish I was able to find out more information just so we could remember the victim better, but unfortunately a lot of these things get lost to history. 
Okay, now we're going to jump ahead 12 years and travel approximately 170 miles, which is 273 kilometers north and somewhat inland from the coast to the small town of Strong, Maine. In 1862, there were around 900 people living in Strong, which is located about 50 miles or 80 kilometers north of Maine's state capital, Augusta. Maine became a state in 1820, and Augusta was designated its capital in 1827. The 1860 population of Augusta was 7,609. Today, with just shy of 19,000 people, it is the third least populated capital of the United States. Do you want to guess which states have the least amount of people in them? In the capital? Yeah, sorry. Uh, Do you want to guess which state capital has the least number of people? Absolutely no idea. I couldn't even guess if I wanted to. Yeah, that's a pretty shitty game. All right. (laughs) It's, (laughs) I'm not good at state capitals, but it's Pierre, South Dakota, which has 14,091 people living in it in 2020. And the winner is Montpelier, Vermont, with 8,074 people as of 2020. I love Vermont. I've never been to South Dakota, but based on that population, it's looking promising. Back to Strong, Maine. And this comes from their town's website, quote, Incorporated on January 31, 1801, and named for Caleb Strong, the governor of Massachusetts, set on a hilly intervale above a big bend in the Sandy River, the area provided fertile soil for agriculture. Farmers grew hay, wheat, corn, oats, and potatoes. The northeast branch of the Sandy River provided water for mills, helping make Strong prosperous. By 1859, when the population was 1,008, it had sawmills, a grist mill, a fulling mill, a carding machine, a starch factory, and a tannery. The fulling mill and carding machine, that would be for making wool. So then it continues, the narrow-gauge Sandy River Railroad connected Farmington and Phillips in 1879. By 1886, town industries included a boot and shoe factory, machine shops, Maine's first cheese factory, a clothespin manufacturer, a maker of cane seat chair bottoms, and an excelsior factory. It was noted as, quote, one of the prettiest villages in the country. Strong was called the toothpick capital of the world due to the productivity of the Strong Wood Products Incorporated plant, which once manufactured 20 million toothpicks a day, end quote. That's crazy. 20 million toothpicks per day. So many toothpicks. I always love these things. I always have the feeling that back then there was such this, I don't know how to describe it, this local pride in producing these things. This place was famous for its toothpicks, another one for its shoelaces, uh, matches, brooms, uh, what was the other, cane seat, chair bottoms, and, and so on and so on. I absolutely loved it. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's so rare now to find things that are still made. Like, I can think of so many things, right? I'm sure you can too, where, like you just said, this is where we made these things Mm. and nothing's nothing's made here. Um, Not nothing, obviously, but very few things are actually made in this country anymore. It's not, you know, everything's an import. So it's exciting when you find a place that's made a thing and is still making the thing. And it's maybe traditional, still in traditional, you know, hands like the same family running that kind of thing for the last 200 years or 150 years. I think that's exciting. Yeah. I do too. I love it when we find stuff like that. All right. So in addition to newspapers, there was another webpage I found dedicated to this murder. And the title of it is called Strong, a Muscle, mm, I believe it's a Muscle Unsquit Village. And hopefully I've pronounced that correctly. It's a page about Laura's murder, and it was written by Strong School 7th and 8th graders. It's part of the main memory network. 
I had found a similar article when I was researching Josie Langmaid's murder. And I think this is such a great idea, teaching kids. This, this was 11th and, uh, sorry, this was 7th and 8th graders. And I just think it's such a great way to teach children how to research and keep their interest with sort of local macabre topics, because this is the sort of thing no. kids talk about, right? I love these memory networks. And the last source I need to mention for this particular murder is a really great article in the Berkshire Edge from February 6, 2018 by Carol Owens called America's First Serial Killer. And these were helpful articles just because this crime happens during the Civil War. And as you might expect, that's kind of the information that dominates the news. So September 1862, and Laura Velli Libby was nine years old and lived with her family on their farm, which was a little bit north of town. She lived with her parents, Isaac and Susan, and at least one younger sister. I found varying reports, but the only one I could confirm was a younger sister who would have been about two years old when Laura was nine. And her name is Laura, L-U-R-A, which I think is really pretty. I also don't know whether Laura attended regular classes in addition to Sunday school, I tried to find an easy explanation for Sunday school and was laughing so hard when I pulled up a scanned copy of a doctoral dissertation from 1910. It was like 250 pages. And I took a screenshot and I sent it to Johanna and she was like, absolutely not. Move along. So I did. Bottom line is, Sunday schools were originally created to teach working children the basics, which were reading, writing, and arithmetic, which is also often called the three R's. Which is ironic because we're talking about learning and obviously arithmetic doesn't start with an R, but people often say arithmetic uh, for short. And, and here we are. So Sunday school was replaced by real schools as education reform happened. She lived right around the time when all of this was happening. So I'm not 100% sure whether or not she attended school during the week or just worked on the family farm. I'm guessing she worked on the farm. It's sort of 50-50 at this time. But Sunday school was routine for a lot of children because, as Christians, you weren't supposed to be working on Sunday the Sabbath. So Laura had a regular routine on Sunday. She would walk a mile and a half, or about 2.4 kilometers, to the Methodist church as long as the weather permitted. It's Maine, so I assume on dangerously cold or really wet days she would stay at home, but normally she'd arrive in time for morning class. Then at 10 a.m. she would attend the worship service at the church. And then she'd have another afternoon class after that that would last from 1 o'clock until 2.30 or 3 in the afternoon. And when that was finished, she would walk home. She had apples and gingerbread for her lunch that day. I love gingerbread so much. Same. I just hate it when it starts to pop up in stores in late August because it's a winter thing here and some things just have to stay like special, in my opinion. Um, no, I eat it year-round. It's my favorite. <laughs> But usually, Laura would be home in plenty of time for dinner with her family. When she wasn't home by four, her parents started to become really worried, and so they retraced their daughter's path to church. And they were just, you know, I'm sure worried maybe she'd fall in and hurt herself, right? Same kind of situation as with Josie Langmaid. So they arrive at the church, and then their concern really begins to turn to real fear, because that's when they learn that their daughter never arrived at church that morning. They spoke to her friends, and every person they spoke with only made them more frantic because no one had seen Laura. Her parents searched for her all night, and the next morning were really glad to see that so many of their neighbors had gathered to begin a really serious, coordinated search. They combed the pastures, woods, and farmland. They covered the entire area between the Libby Farm and town where church was. They searched all morning, 
and in the afternoon, their search was over. This is an excerpt from the Lewiston Falls Journal, 25th of September, 1862, which was a Thursday, page 1. Quote, Her body was found at 2 o'clock Monday p.m., buried in the edge of an opening entirely surrounded by woods, about 20 rods from the road and half a mile from her father's house. She was found slightly and ingeniously buried, there being no dirt nor disturbance of the ground visible, only in one spot a slight depression in the tall weeds and grass. Her dress was entirely stripped from her body, with the exception of one undergarment and her stockings, and closely packed over and around her. A rape had been committed upon her person. It then says, yeah, the most shocking something had been used. Her head was cut and bruised by blows with a stone, and her throat cut. Her throat was cut. It, I can't, re- I'll, sh- I'll, what's the word? I'll post a copy of this article in our socials, but it's, um, it's like a scanned old newspaper and it looks like there's a crease in the paper right exactly where it tells you what happened. But her throat was, her throat was cut ear to ear. And then it continues, uh, the blows upon her head had been given without removing her hat, which was bruised and bloody and matted with hair. Her clothes were partially drenched in blood, not having evidently been removed until after the murder had been committed. After the discovery of the body, the search was continued, and in an old barn or hovel, some fifteen rods in the field from the place of burial, evidence was found showing it to have been the place where the crime was perpetrated. In one corner was found a pool of blood, and also blood spatter upon the sills of the building. Under a pile of straw and rubbish was found a shovel with fresh dirt upon the blade. Further than this, no trace has been discovered of the murder. The body of the poor mangled girl was conveyed to Porter's Hall at Strong Village. All right, then the article goes on to talk about who the people of the inquest would be and all of that. It's difficult to get a lot of exact details, and of course, at this time, most papers were not forthcoming with certain things and would use terms like ravaged or outraged, so outright saying that it was rape in this case was pretty rare. Laura had wounds to her head from a rock and her throat was cut so deeply she was almost decapitated, and that was the cause of her death. She was raped, her clothes were removed from her body, and I think she may have had some mutilation of her genitals, but this is just hinted at in a couple of articles, and maybe in a later confession. So this is awful. I tell myself that she fell, hit her head on a rock, and that was it. Never regained consciousness. You know, that's that's kind of what I tell myself happened, because We can't always paint that kinder way that things went, you know what I mean? So when we can, I do. Because there are other, there are other cases we'll be discussing in this series that are, yeah. So they found the shovel that was used to dig her grave, and they also found a straight-edge razor with no handle that was thought to be the murder weapon. And then, you know, I guess there was like a shack or something, which is where the murder had happened. But who had lured her there? Who would she have gone with? They found her bloody clothing and a bloody men's shirt that no one recognized and that was never tied to anyone. Her body had been found in a shallow grave on what was then known as Burnt Knoll. Today, the spot is known as Burbank Hill, but locals call it Murderfield. This is obviously extremely gruesome. It's so sad. Also, there seems to be a lot of evidence that they found, which nowadays would be so helpful, right? But back then, it's like, yeah. Right. Still... Did those leads give them any good suspects, like anything? 
So the town was really upset. Obviously, everyone in town was very upset, and they got together and offered a $1,000 reward for finding the killer. There was a suspect early on, though, and his name was Lawrence Doyle. He was of Irish descent and came from the Canadian provinces, which were then part of the United Kingdom. They were until 1931. He was in his late 20s, early 30s, right around 30 or so, and he actually had his own flock of sheep that he kept in a field that was some distance from the Libby farm, and he tended to those sheep in addition to the work he did on the Libby farm. He was said to be illiterate, but kind and a good worker. So why was he a suspect? So that's a good question. Let's go over the reasons why he was a suspect. The first one is he had no alibi. He said that on the Sunday that Laura was murdered, he had gone to take care of his sheep who were in a pasture some distance from the Libby farm. But because at this time you're not supposed to work on Sunday, he stayed off the road so that nobody would see him. And he walked along the creek bed passing underneath a bridge. He was trying very hard not to be seen, but not because he'd committed murder necessarily. He had also, the next reason, he had apparently asked Mr. Libby if he'd be walking Laura to church that day. I get the impression that sometimes the family went, and other days they needed to be home to care for the farm. And so Isaac Libby had said no, Laura would be going on her own that day. So that's obviously very, very nefarious. Someone heard him say at the coroner's inquest that he'd seen a similar crime in Canada. Wow, he's given himself away now, right? The next reason is because he was from away. He came from the British provinces. He wasn't local. His people were not known. How can we trust him? Also, maybe some anti-Irish resentment. Uh-huh, exactly. Finally, and this one is really my least favorite, he appeared very pale and upset when the body was found. <laughs> Compared to the people <laughs> who were, had all rosy cheeks and were happy about it, or...? Yeah, I think I'd be more worried about the people who didn't seem pale or upset when the body was found. I think it's... While I do yeah. see why the, some of these things could be somewhat suspicious if you're really looking for something, I honestly do hope there's more that led to him being the suspect. Because so far, these are all pretty normal, standard things someone who lived on the farm with the Libis would say and feel. <laughs> As you said, of course he's upset seeing the body of a murdered child that he knows uh, you know, being recovered from a shallow grave in the woods. Who wouldn't be? Right, exactly. But apparently that was enough. He was arrested for Laura's murder, and he was held for a year before his trial started, in November of 1863. So the entire time he protested his innocence, he never once wavered from his story, and his attorney, E.F. Pillsbury, also believed him. I also found several letters to the editor and his support, other people who had written in, basically saying, you know, this is all ridiculous rumor and speculation, and that there was no real evidence. Uh, people, I don't know. It, it's shocking that he was arrested, really. So his clothes were taken and sent to a specialist in Boston, and the specialist tested them and found no blood. The bloody men's shirt that was found near the crime scene was not his. It wasn't anything that anybody recognized. It couldn't be tied to him. The entire case was really desperately circumstantial. Like, it's shocking that he would even be arrested with these things being... We have a lot of those. Yeah. His first trial lasted about 25 hours, and it ended in a hung jury. They were deadlocked and couldn't come to a unanimous decision. And so Lawrence went back to jail to wait for the next trial. And that began in April of 1864. And that is when a legal first happened in the United States. So... 
This is a quote from Carol Owens in her piece for the Berkshire Edge, quote, For a poor, illiterate, and reputedly reviled man, Doyle had quite a defense team. They were E.F. Pillsbury, Joseph Linscott, and Oliver Currier. These formidable defense attorneys asserted their client's innocent and their intention to correct the injustice of him being accused. They decided to try a new rule for the first time. They put Lawrence Doyle on the stand to testify on his own behalf. Prior to that moment, under a common law, a party to a suit was disqualified from testifying at trial based on the belief that the testimony of an interested witness would be self-serving and false. Doyle's day in court is marked in the history books. That first example of the accused testifying led to the current statute that begins, quote, Every person of sufficient understanding, including a party, may testify in action or proceeding civil or criminal, end quote. Yet it did Doyle no good. Doyle was found guilty and sentenced to life in a prison at the Maine State Prison in Thomaston. Simply put, the jury did not believe him. Perhaps it was because it was the first time. In all the years prior, the accused was barred from testifying because it was assumed he would lie. The rule changed, but the perception did not. End quote. So, I found that interesting, that until that time, everyone accused of a crime in the United States would be expected to lie about it. That's the very opposite of the innocent until proven guilty court mm. system that we like to pride ourselves on, right? And I don't know of how much that sentiment has really changed in all these years, because it's still kind of iffy to have someone testify in their own defense, isn't it? I think it's way more common and expected here that accused testify. I could be wrong, and this uh, is only the impression I get from the cases I read about over here. I always have the feeling that in the US, it's always a little bit of a shock moment, maybe. Also, I find it interesting. Like here, I know that people have this idea that you have to tell the truth when you're testifying in front of the court as an accused, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But you mm -hmm. actually don't. Like I talked to a lawyer once and you you don't have to tell the truth. You can lie all, all you want, right? The court has to prove that you're lying or the oh, really? attorneys. Yeah, yeah. So I'm more That's inclined when I, when I hear something that an accused said that I believe it because in my mind is that, oh, well, he has to tell the truth, right? Which is actually not true. Also, I'm kind of naive with these things, and I always believe things that people tell me. So. Yeah. I had jury duty last year, and I believed everything the person said. So I'm not the best juror. <laughs> yeah. But well, because here, you have to tell the truth, or you'll be charged with perjury. Yeah. It's illegal to not. So, yeah. I don't know. I think here, testifying on your own behalf, it depends on everything from like how credible you seem to how your physical appearance looks to people. But I think in a lot of big cases, you don't see the defendant testifying. I know that a hellion is going to come to us and tell us more about this because they'll have all the info. Oh, I had to share with you this salty little piece from page three in the Bangor Daily Wig and Courier from May 14th, 1864. It was just a little snippet, but it said, The Patriot will not forget this week to transfer the following names of three subscribers to that sheet from the Farmington Jail to Thomaston State Prison, Lawrence Doyle, Samuel Richardson, Azel H. Thompson. Let them have their customary crumbs of comfort. End quote. <laughs> like, customary crumbs? Like, they're basically saying, oh, by the way, here are the names of three of our uh, subscribers, <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to change their address for them to the prison. <laughs> Let them have their crumbs of comfort. Let them have their customary crumbs of comfort. I think I need that on a fucking t-shirt. <laughs> now you have to cross-stitch it on a pillow. 
I just checked again just to be sure. And yeah, here you don't have to tell that the accused is the only one who can lie in front of the court. Uh, witnesses have to testify the truth. And there is no perjury for the accused, just for witnesses. Wow. Mm. <laughs> wow. All right. So, yeah, speaking of the prison, I can't remember if we talked about the main state prison when we covered, was it Smutty Nose? Did we t- I can't remember. Yeah. The thing that's shocking is, is how terrifying and awful the cells were. They were underground, and there'd be like a hatch with help of a ladder to get in and out. So I don't like that. No. Wikipedia says, quote, State legislature established the main state prison in Thomaston in 1824. The original layout of the prison kept prisoners housed in covered subterranean granite cells, 9 feet 8 inches, which is 2.8 meters deep. The top opening of each cell measured 4 feet 6 inches by 8 feet 9 inches, so that's about 1.3 meters to just under 3 meters. Inmates entered their cells through a 2-foot square opening in the cell cover, secured with an iron grate. In the prison's early years, the majority of prisoners died of tuberculosis before completing their sentences, end quote. I have a picture of like the layout of the prison because it was in a granite quarry. So they basically had like chiseled out of granite mm. these cells, which were really narrow at the top. And then they'd drop a ladder down the, you know, the jailer. And you'd have to come up and down the ladder from when you got in and out of prison, like, out of your cell to go, you know, court to go. What's the word? What do you do? What's to, to mine the quarry, I guess, to dig in the quarry for more granite. Just absolutely horrific, really horrific. So Lawrence Doyle died in prison six years later, and he was insisting on his innocence until the day he died. Plenty of people did believe him innocent as well, and his attorneys kept working and trying to find the real killer, but nothing ever came of it. Do you know why he had um, three very top-grade lawyers? I don't. I think that they, I think they were interested in the case. It was like pro bono. Yeah, I'm sure I read it and glazed over it, but I think it was pro bono. This Pillsbury especially was, I think, working pro bono mm-hmm. uh, and was passionately uh, involved in, in defending him and just believed in him. I think I think Pillsbury just really saw an injustice happening. and Because even if he was guilty, even if he did do it, again, it, there's just not enough evidence to have proved that he did it. So... It's hard to imagine any way in which he should have died in prison. You know what I mean? I don't think he did do it, but uh, Pillsbury did keep working, and he's going to pop up again as we keep going. So Laura was laid to rest in the Strong Village Cemetery, where her parents would eventually join her. Her mother died in 1905 and her father in 1907. Her younger sister Susie married a widower, I think, with teenage children, and we hope that she had a happy life. The inscription on Laura's stone is particularly touching, and it reads, quote, Laura V., daughter of Isaac and Susan Libby, died by the hand of an assassin, September 14, 1862, age 9 years, 4 months, 24 days. Though we weep, she returns not. Mm. End quote. Right? Mm. Ugh. So that is our first confirmed murder, 9-year-old Laura Valley Libby. Maine, September 1862. So now we're going to move ahead three years to 1865, and we're going to be discussing the Bussy Woods murders. 
For this crime, my main sources other than newspapers were an article by the Jamaica Plain Historical Society, which was written by Walter H. Marks and reprinted with permission from the December 3, 1993 Jamaica Plain Gazette. Also, the books Murder and Mayhem in Boston, Horrific Crimes in the Hub by Christopher Daly, and Suffer the Children, American Horrors, Homicides, and Hauntings by Troy Taylor. So, the next crime that we're going to discuss takes place 200 miles south in what is now Jamaica Plain, a neighborhood in Boston. I remember that you mentioned that name already, and I think it's mm -hmm. an interesting name, and I meant to ask you back then, I think, uh, where does the name come from? Where's the link to Jamaica there? So nobody really knows. There's a theory that there used to be a tavern on the road to Dedham, and that served new this new Jamaican rum. Mm -hmm. So that's possible. And there's another theory that it's a mispronunciation of the native Massachusetts tribe. The term that they used for the area sounded similar to that. And so it was just a, we run into that sometimes, don't we? But we're not really sure exactly how, how it got that term. It first shows up on a map in the 1650s. And fun sidebar, I used to live and work in Jamaica Plain. I worked at the Arboretum. We're going to be talking a lot more about that next week. And that's where these murders happen. But I once sent my coworkers at the Arboretum postcards when I was on vacation. And one of them didn't get theirs. And it, it didn't show up for like a year. And when it did, it had all kinds of postmarks and stamps on it and notations on it. It had accidentally been sent to Jamaica, <laughs> not Jamaica Plain. I'm sure that wasn't the first time. And after that, I just used Boston because it is a part of Boston. But I wonder if Sheila kept that postcard because the postmarks on it were just so funny. If I was going to tell you about Jamaica Plain, we'd be here all day and you'd be trying to strangle me through the internet. It's where my late great friend April lived when I first met her. And that's the reason that I moved to, to JP when I moved to Boston, because I used to spend so much time with her. I could go on and on. So I'm just going to tell you what Wikipedia says. Quote, Jamaica Plain is a neighborhood of 4.4 square miles, which is 11 kilometers squared, in the city of Boston, Massachusetts. Settled by Puritans seeking farmland to the south, it was originally part of the former town of Roxbury. The community seceded from Roxbury as part of the new town of West Roxbury in 1851 and became part of Boston when West Roxbury was annexed in 1874. In the 19th century, Jamaica Plain became one of the first streetcar suburbs in America and home to a significant portion of Boston's emerald necklace of parks designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, end quote. I like the term, emerald necklace of parks. It's nice. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. So the land where the murders happened is now part of the Arboretum, and the Arboretum is the crown jewel in Boston's emerald necklace. Those parks were designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. He's the father of American landscape design, and the name might sound familiar to those of you. I know a lot of people in our Facebook group have read it. Uh, Devil in the White City. Mm. There's a lot. I was Great surprised book. how much information there was in that book. Mm. I was expecting more murder and less. No, it's great. It's like it's a, great a whole book. era yeah. explained in, in that book. Yeah. It's so good. Lots of architecture. Mm. Yep. Olmsted also designed Central Park in New York, which was once like swampland. It was, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, thought that I think a lot of people, myself included, once upon a time, a lot of people have that parks like Central Park 
we're just an area we didn't develop, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we just left it like it was. We didn't touch it. And look how beautiful we have this park now. No. Central Park was a swamp. Nobody wanted anything to do with that part of New York. That's why nothing was built there. And he turned it into the beautiful park that we have today. The following is text from one of the signs at the Arnold Arboretum located on Bussey Hill, and it says, quote, Bussey Hill is named for gentleman farmer and entrepreneur Benjamin Bussey. He left this land to Harvard University in 1849. Before the landscape was established as the Arnold Arboretum in 1872, Mr. Bussey invited visitors to walk his hills and woods enjoying nature. Hemlock Hill was known as Bussey's Woods, and his estate was called Woodland Hill. Frederick Law Olmsted, landscape architect of the Arboretum and Boston's Emerald Necklace, loved this hilltop. Look for the blue hills in the distance. In winter, turn around to see Boston skyline peeking through bare trees. Olmsted designed all but the three oldest Emerald Necklace parks. His vision united old and new parks in a connected system that looks natural, but is actually human-made. End quote. I'm pretty sure that the three oldest parks they refer to are the Boston Common, the Boston Garden, and the Comav Mall. Uh, mall meaning a tree-bordered pedestrian walkway. Yeah, really, really pretty stuff. So the grounds weren't planted and cultivated yet, they were just woods. And it's June 1865, so the Confederate Army surrendered on April 10th, 1865, but that news, of course, was still reaching various states. On April 14, 1865, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated at Ford's Theater, which we covered in, in uh, episode 26. Also in 1865, Boston City Hall, the old one on School Street, was built. Also, my husband's alma mater, MIT, opened. Go Beavers. Uh, do high schools in Austria have mascots? We don't need them. High school sports also is not a thing here. Like, we have, of course, PE, right? But there's no high yeah. school teams and such. Like, we don't have that. Uh, did I know that? How did I not know that? Yeah. All right. So anyway, there's a lot happening in the world at this time, right? There's a lot going on. And like many families, the Joyce family had not had the easiest time of things. Isabella was 14, but very tall and mature for her age, physically mature for her age. Uh, Papers recorded she looked scarcely less than 18, so they're saying she looks fully developed. She Mm. looked like a grown woman. Her little brother John, he was 12 and rather small for his age. They had grown up in Lynn, but the death of their father, Stephen, a couple of years before, had made things just really difficult for their mother, Isabel, who was a seamstress. I tried to find more information on the family, but I didn't have much luck. I did find one old census, and if it's the same Stephen Joyce, he was a hatter. So, you know, we discussed that in our... Uh, Victorian death trip. Second Victorian, right? Mm. I think that was in the second, maybe the first. Anyway, first, the second we discussed was how dangerous death, that was. Right? That's right, yeah, yeah, in the Victorian death trip episode, absolutely. And not that there weren't lots of other things that could kill you at the time, obviously, including the Civil War, but I don't think, I think it would have been mentioned if their father had been killed in the war. I feel like that would have been noted. Anyhow, after their father died, it it was just impossible for Isabel to care for both children. So Isabella had moved in with one of her aunts in Lynn, and their mother, Isabel, had moved back to Boston, uh, and she lived on Cottage Street with Johnny, where she was from, and so she was close to where her mother lived um, in Boston. Her mother could watch John when she needed to be traveling for work, and that's exactly what was happening on Monday, June 12th, which was a very sunny, warm spring day. Their mother was out of town. She was staying with a family for a couple of days because she was measuring, making dresses, that sort of thing. And so she was going to be gone for a few days and returning home on Wednesday. 
Their grandmother lived on the corner of Newland and Concord Streets on the ground floor apartment of one of those really fabulous South End brownstones. I have a picture of it, and that is where John was staying while his mother was out of town on that dressmaking job. Isabella was visiting from Lynn, and she arrived when John was still at morning classes, and she just couldn't wait to spend some time with her little brother. Their grandma made them an afternoon meal, and it was ready when John came home from his morning classes at the Dwight School around 11 a.m. It was a beautiful, unseasonably warm day, though, and the kids did not want to be inside. They wanted to go for a picnic. They wanted to go play in the woods. Johnny told his sister that there were some really great woods nearby to explore. Sensing that their grandmother was pretty unconvinced about this plan, Isabella reassured her that they would definitely be back in time for Johnny to go to his afternoon classes, which would start up again at two that afternoon. And so finally their grandmother relented. She was like, all right, you know, that's fine. So she gave Isabella, who was also called Bella, 10 cents for the streetcar, but they were only planning to go to Mays Woods, which, thank you to the JP Gazette article by Walter Marks, we know it's Woods Off the Arbor Way, only about a mile and a half from their grandma's house. I looked. I spent an entire afternoon looking at old maps, trying to figure out where Mays Woods were. Nowhere. I got nowhere. All right. So they set off just after 11 a.m. They never came home. When they had not returned by nightfall, their grandmother knew something terrible had happened, and she was absolutely terrified for their safety and went for the police. A search of May's woods turned up empty. There was no sign of them. On Wednesday, Isabel returned from her sewing job and headed to her mother's house to check in and see the children. Of course, she doesn't know that they're missing. It's 1865. They're in the right place, but the wrong time. It's another 11 years before Alexander Graham Bell would make the world's first phone call from Boston. So I think it's so hard for us to imagine to be completely incapable of being in touch on short notice with a phone call. Yeah, it's really hard to imagine, isn't it? Even, Even though we grew up without cell phones, there were phones you could call somebody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. It's even today, like when we go on a cruise, we'll pay the basic one so that we have enough Wi-Fi when we're in the middle of the ocean to check in and make sure that the dog's okay or our parents are okay or whatever's happening. I love being disconnected like that, though. I will say that's one of the things I like about cruising is, is how you just have to kind of unplug. But the downside at this time, of course, is you have no idea what's happening with your family until you get home. It's like the um, the badger murders in Wakefield that we talked about, you know, when the mother steps off the streetcar yeah. and sees a paper with her dead children on the front. It's awful to learn that way, anything like this. So their mother is obviously understandably just distraught. On Thursday, the New York Times reported that, quote, by direction of Colonel Burl, Deputy Marshal Joseph Hubbard of Roxbury, with a strong force and seven Boston policemen, made a systematic search of the Roxbury Woods and were satisfied that the children were not there, end quote. And that was it. There was no sign of them. Only one person had reported seeing children who matched their description walking toward Dorchester. It wasn't until the following Tuesday, June 20th, that two merchants from Boston who were spending an afternoon hiking in Bussy Woods noticed a terrible odor. They followed the smell to a horrific sight, a decomposing body. They set off at once to notify the police. The police arrived, and they were able to positively identify 14-year-old Isabella from her clothing. But where, they wondered, was Johnny. And I think that's probably a good 
place to stop for now. In part two, we'll discuss what happened in this case, and we'll also get into another really terrible murder. These cases are really just among some of the worst we, we discuss. I really can't wait for next week, to be honest. Yeah. I don't want to end it with everything that happened to them, because it's really terrible. Mm. So I don't want to end on that note. I'd rather kind of, you know, ease into it. And then we'll get into more awful, awful things next week. Something good? Should I go or you want to go first? Yes, please. They've heard enough from me. My something good is super easy this week. On Friday, my husband is coming home and he's going to stay home for six months. So we did it. Three years are over. <laughs> he's going to come home. Wow. Yeah. He's going to be here oh, for six months. Amazing. It's so I'm so excited, but it's also a little bit scary, you know? Yes. Because... Obviously, I'm used to like having my day planned as I want to do it. And I don't know. I know it's going to be great, but it's just like, wow, <laughs> it's going to be home. I'm not used to it. It's going to be so great. I'm so excited for you both. That's awesome. Three years. Can you believe it? I know. I feel like we were just talking about this. Yeah. It's, it's went by so fast now. So fast. You remember last year when I told you, well, he's coming home and then he... He yeah. kind of got promoted and stayed another year, and now it's over. I do. Yeah. <laughs> wow. This is exciting stuff. Mm -hmm. That's my something good. I'm really happy for you. Yeah, How that's about an easy something good. Mine is going to be Jamaica Plain. I'm going to talk about it more next week. I think next week's going to be the Arboretum, and I'll give you all some really interesting info about it. I loved working there. But reading about it brought me back so many memories of my dear friend April, who we lost in 2013. Uh, fuck you, cancer. If you know JP, I used to live right next door to that church where South Street and South, uh, where South Huntington meets Center Street, right where the, there was a 7-Eleven there and like a dive bar and a CVS. I used to live right across from there. I hated living in the city. I really did. I'm not a city mouse, but it's the only time I lived close enough to friends to just pop by whenever. And I, I really, really miss that. I loved, I loved that time when, a when I was young and living in the city for the first mm -hmm. time and April just lived down the street. Like that just brought back so many happy, happy memories, um, before I got sick. And I don't know, just happy, happy memories in, in JP. My other big something good is Opus is finally on the mend. My poor boy. He got a, did I tell you already about the seroma that I he had? So, yeah. The fluid. So because of that, the poor thing's been on sedatives for like a month now. He's been on sedatives and he still has Zoomies on sedatives. He's the highest energy pupper in the world, but it's finally going down in size. I think it's, we're in the home stretch now. I think awesome. we're going to be able to take him off so sedatives good. in like the next week. So another something good is dog sedatives because <laughs> they've been a godsend. <laughs> the other thing is now we're starting to look at getting him a sibling, like getting him another dog. But I, th I feel like I'm being... <sighs> Like, I want to find the right dog. I don't mm. know how... How do you find the right dog for your dog? Well, you have to introduce them. We couldn't do that because Lila was from Bosnia, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but if it's a dog that's nearby, you obviously have to go visit with Opus. And don't take a puppy. <laughs> no, Paul really wants another puppy. I don't think I can do another puppy. Yeah. Like, Opus was the best puppy in the whole world, and I thought that experience was going to kill me. I can't wait. I'm sure some of our some of our listeners will have ideas. A friend of mine adopts dogs out of Aruba, and I'm like, oh, they have some really sweet ones. But then I looked up online, and they're 
they seem super active again. So, because Opus loves all dogs. There's never been a dog he hasn't gotten along with. Yeah. But he matches the style of play of whatever the dog gets. So he does need to meet them. I think you're right. Yeah. I think he need, we need to just find a dog that doesn't doesn't play too rough. Because yeah. Opus has no off field. There's no chill in Opus. Like, he'll just play until he collapses. So we have to find a dog that can moderate that, if that makes sense. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please do us the huge favor. Even though Annie's podcast goal is reached, we reached the 1,000 ratings and reviews on iTunes USA. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't want your ratings and reviews anymore. Quite on the contrary. That's so right. please go to your podcast app and check if you can leave us a rating and or review. That would be super. What else? Uh, for any other information, please visit our website, freshhellpodcast.com. There you find links to our merch store. I just ordered three premium hoodies today in double XL because I need something huge and comfy for winter. Winter is coming. That's the size we know I that. Wear. Yeah. I like a double XL fresh hell hoodie with a pair of leggings. Yeah, it's like the most comfortable. It's my winter it's my winter uniform. Come say hi on Facebook in our Facebook group. Uh, it's the best group out there if you like all random things that make our podcast and us so very intriguing. The Facebook group is just that. <laughs> uh, come to Patreon if you're interested. Check out patreon.com. Search for Fresh Hell. We pop right up. There was another game night last Saturday. People were having such a great time. So much fun. <laughs> Again, thanks for voting for us in the Podcast Awards, People's Choice Podcast Awards. We can't wait for 30th of September to see if, I don't know, maybe... With the grace of all the gods up there, or whatever rocks your boat. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen this year. <laughs> but not because of our, our amazing listeners. You guys did no. everything and more that we could have hoped for. You were the best. True. It was even, I, I didn't expect to be on the slate at all, to be honest. No, me neither. I feel like it's giving me false hope, and I yeah, don't like it. it's bad. I'm going to cry. Please tell your pets to say hi, all your pets. The puppies, the old dogs, the middle-aged dogs, the crumpy ones, the, the lovely ones. And not only the pets, uh, the dogs, the cats, the guinea pigs, the iguanas and lizards and snakes. We got some lovely photos of those lately. The birds. We need birds. Yeah. I haven't seen birds yet, or not a lot of birds. Uh, the rabbits, the wallabies. All of them. All of them. They're the best pets Treat them kindly, take them to the vet, keep them warm, keep them cold, whatever your climate is at the moment, they deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> and be kind to your pets, to your fellow human beings, and to yourself, which is the hardest part of all. Ugh, it really is. It's the worst. The worst. And in the meantime, if you are going through hell, maybe you belong there. Choose. <laughs> No, sorry. <laughs> Keep going. Choose. Bye. <laughs> Maybe you belong there. Oh, snap. <laughs> All right. That was good. <laughs> <laughs>